So this new section we're going into, this is going to become more poetic in a lot of ways. And 2 Samuel chapter 21 through 24 is episodic narrative. This is not serial in that we're going to get a story flowing from one part to one part to part. This is episodic. We're going to get a little thing here, a little thing here, and a little thing here. In fact, most scholars believe that this might actually be scattered throughout David's life. That some of this stuff might have happened before everything we just read about in chapters um, 10 through 20. Some of it might be scattered in that time period, which makes it even more complicated. Because you would like to see David being good, then he's being bad, but then he's being good again. But it really is just good and bad, good and bad, all mixed together. And some of it might be at the end of his life. Chapter 24 is definitely at the very end of his life. So this is just episodic narratives scattered throughout. There's a chiastic structure here where it begins with a famine and ends with a plague. And then between that is another sandwich of stories about great warriors. And then in the middle of that are two psalms that David sings. And what it basically is showing you is that there's judgment at the beginning and judgment at the end, which is sandwiched in with these stories of these horrible scumbags of Joab and Abishai who are doing great things in God's name. And if you, which even with Joab, God's going to muddy the waters for you and make you like him. <laughs> and then, in the very center of the chiastic structure of the bullseye, are two psalms that David sings. And what the narrator is showing you is, you've seen all the behavior of David, but here's the heart of David. And that's what then muddies the waters for you. But it doesn't just muddy the waters either. It also gives you great hope and great appreciation for how God sees you. Because just as much as we're supposed to look in the mirror and see ourselves here, then we're also to see that God sees us this way too. But then it also reminds us that we're to see other people this way as well. And that's what the narrator always does. It first shows you for who you really are. And then it shows you how God deals with you. And then it gives you that example of how you deal with other people. And that's what the narrator is doing now. You're going to see how God sees David. So chapter 21, verse 1. During David's reign, there was a famine for three consecutive years. So David inquired of Yahweh, and Yahweh said, It is because of Saul and his blood-stained family, because he murdered the Gibeonites. Now, speaking of the Gibeonites... In Joshua chapter 9, we're told about the Gibeonites who were of the Canaanite people who were supposed to be exterminated for their sins. But the Gibeonites nearby, but they tricked David into thinking that they came from a long, long, long line away, land away, that, that Joshua wasn't allowed to kill them. Joshua made the horrible mistake of not consulting God first. And he went on their advice and he made a treaty with them. But he made a treaty with them, which he never should have done, but God said, you're to honor the treaty. And so Joshua did honor the treaty, and the people honored that treaty. God is now coming along and saying, Saul didn't honor the treaty. He murdered a whole bunch of Gibeonites. That story is never recorded anywhere in the Bible. We're never told anywhere in the book of Psalms where Saul did that in his life, how he did it, why he did it, what it looked like, how many people he killed. We're never told that. So the narrator is going to summarize that a little bit for you. Verse 2, The king summoned the Gibeonites and spoke with them. Now the Gibeonites were not descendants of Israel. They were a remnant of the Amorites. And the Israelites had made a promise to them, but Saul tried to kill them because of his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. 
And David said to the Gibeonites, What can I do for you, and how can I make amends so that you will bless Yahweh's inheritance? Now, how seriously does God take treaties? Serious enough, when Saul violates it, God punishes the entire nation with three-year famine. That's, that's huge. That says something about how God values your oaths, your promises. And even though they should have never made this treaty with these ungodly descendants of the Amorites, they still did it, and God honors his promises. And this is a huge point that the prophets are going to make. When God comes along and says, The law gives me every right as Yahweh to abandon you, but I made promises and I will keep them. Because I take promises seriously. And so God now says, I'm punishing all of Israel. Now you're like, wait a minute, that's not fair. He's punishing all of Israel with a famine because of what Saul, one man, did, and now that Saul gets gone, dead. Yeah. Because remember, nobody sins in a vacuum. Our sins always affect the people around us, and they always trickle down into the generations after us. And not only that, Saul is unique compared to all other people in that he was the representative of the entire nation. And he spoke on behalf of the nation. And there's a certain sense too, probably here, is there's no way that Saul on his own tried to exterminate an entire people group. People joined him. People joined him. So David says, we're being punished because of this sin. And he goes to the Gibeonites and says, what do you want to do? What do you want me to do to make amends of it? Now, this is the positive light. Because David is now the guy who's trying to make right the sins of the person before him. And he's willing to go to the Gibeonites who are foreigners. The Gibeonites who should have been exterminated. But David's saying, I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to honor the treaty. I want to know, what do you want from me? And that's what the contrast is. Saul was willing to break the treaty and kill people. David was willing to honor treaty and try to make things right. That's how he's godly. The Gibeonites said to them, We have no claim to silver or gold from Saul or from his family, nor will we be justified in putting to death anyone in Israel. David asked, What then are you asking me to do for you? They replied to the king, As for this man who exterminated us and who schemed against us, that we were destroyed and left without status throughout the borders of Israel. Let seven of his male descendants be turned over to us, and we will execute them before Yahweh and Gibeah Saul, who was Yahweh's chosen one. The king replied, I will turn them over. They basically say, Saul wiped out a whole bunch of our descendants and family. We want seven of his sons to die. And David says, it is done. And you're like, what? This cannot be right. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16. 2 Kings 14, 6. And Ezekiel 18 make it very clear that the children should not be punished for the sins of the father. This is in the light of David being a great guy. So let's keep reading. Verse 7. The king had mercy on Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, and light of Yahweh's oath that had been taken between David and Jonathan, son of Saul. So the day, so king took Armoni and Mephibosheth, the sons of Ai's daughter Rizpah, who he had borne to Saul, and the five sons of Saul's daughter Merib, whom she had borne to Adriel, the son of Barzillia, the Melthite. He turned them over to the Gibeonites, and they executed them on the hill before Yahweh, and the seven of them died together. They were put to death during the harvest time, during the first day of the beginnings of the barley harvest. 
David is now, in some ways, trapped between a rock and a hard place. In some ways, he, he's got to deal with this famine. He is the king. He represents Israel. God is judging Israel for the sins of Saul. So he has to deal with the sins of Saul by killing these descendants. But in another sense, he made a promise to Saul that he would not exterminate his family. So David does a... But remember, God's covenant trumps that. David made a promise not to kill all Saul's sons, but what happens when some of those sons have violated the law and they're guilty of death? So David decides to compromise here, and he does not kill Mephibosheth because Mephibosheth is an innocent man who's been loyal, and he made a promise directly to Jonathan specifically. But he decides to take... Saul had two surviving daughters. He takes two sons of the one daughter and five sons of the other daughter. And he, he gives them over to the Gibeonites, and the Gibeonites kill them. And you're like, what the heck? This is not right. But why isn't this section this positive? Verse 10. In some ways you say, this is kind of just. They killed a bunch of descendants of the Gibeonites. They deserved to kill, have a bunch of their sons killed. In other sense, you're like, yeah, but the sins of the father shouldn't be delivered on the son. So the narrator makes you sympathetic to the mothers. And he makes you sympathetic by saying, Rizpah, verse 10, the daughter of Ai, took sackcloth and spread it out for herself on the rock. From the beginning of the harvest until the rain fell on them, she did not allow the birds of the air to feed on them day by day, nor the wild animals by night. When David was told what Rizpah, daughter of Ai, Saul's concubine, had done, he went and took the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan from the leaders of Jabesh-Gilead, and they had secretly taken them from the plaza of Bashan, and it was there that the Philistines publicly exposed their corpses after they had killed Saul at Gilboa. David brought the bones of Saul of Jonathan his son from there, and they also gathered up the bones of those who had been executed." They buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin at Zelzal, and the grave of his father Kish. So the narrator makes you sympathetic to these dead descendants by showing you the love in the heart of a mother who day and night like covers these dead bodies with her body to protect them from being devoured by the birds. To be leave a body unburied is a curse. And God doesn't allow it to hang around for a long time. And David has sympathy on them. And David, in his sympathy, decides that he's going to give him a good burial. And not only that, he decides to take the bones of Jonathan and Saul from Jabesh Gilead, they're not buried with their fathers, and bring them back to Benjamin, take the, son, the, body, the bones of these seven kids, or descendants, and put them all together and bury them all together in a proper burial with their family members in their homeland. And this way, David is showing the curse is off the family of Saul. The curse has been satisfied. But here's the kicker. After they had done everything that the king had commanded, God responded to the prayers for the land. God lifted the famine from the land after the Gibeonites had been killed, which means God approved of it. Now what do you do with that? This is complicated. This is difficult. In some ways, God says, the sins of the father should not be visited on the children. But then right here, God says, now that you've killed those son, seven, the curse on Saul's family is satisfied. My wrath is no longer against them. You've appeased the, me. You have atoned for their sins, and I will lift the famine. 
Now remember, there is a sacrifice for your sins in the Lamb and ultimately in Jesus. But even the book of Exodus makes it very clear that there are certain sins that there is no blood atonement for and your death becomes, so to speak, the sacrifice. Just like even in the book of Revelation. You either are found in the book of the Lamb, where the Lamb's sacrifice covers your sin, or you become the sacrifice to atone for your sins and you die in the lake of fire. Now, what do you do with this? Ultimately, I don't know. I have no easy answer. Now, hopefully by now you realize I've said that a lot to some certain scenarios. I can make some stuff up and try to make you feel really good and can't sugarcoat this and excuse it away and make it less than what it is and that kind of stuff, but God have mercy on my soul if I do that. Ultimately, I don't know what to do with this. But let me give you some thoughts. I'm not going to wrap it up in a nice, neat little bow. I'm not going to explain it completely in a cosmic God way. I'm just going to give you some thoughts. Yes, in some ways, God says he will not visit the sins of the father upon the children. But there are cases where God does exactly that. He does punish the children. Here's the tension between corporate sin and individual sin. Where in some ways, I am an individual, and I commit sins, and I should answer for my sins, and no other person should answer for my sins because they didn't commit them. But there's another sense that I have sins that affect other people, and that my sins will become a model to my children. And my children will model those sins to a certain extent, and they will begin to duplicate that. I can create an environment that is so ungodly that my children and the people in my environment have no hope of ever getting out of that bad example. That to a certain extent, the Bible says that the teachers are held to a higher standard than anybody else, which scares the crap out of me, because the example I set as people follow me can be implemented in their life. Yes, they are guilty of making that choice themselves, but I am still guilty because of how I influence them. And there is this thing called generational sin. And we're, we're learning more and more and more in psychology of how prevalent generational sin really is. Group thinking and environments and that kind of stuff. And to a certain extent, Saul didn't sin all by himself. His, people joined him. And most of the people that joined him were his own family members. We've seen how loyal the Judaites, Abishai and Joab and Amas, are to David. Whereas we're seeing how loyal they are to Saul. Okay, Shimei and all of them, and Sheba. They're all loyal, and they're all in this together. And every single descendant of Saul that we've seen has been a horrible, evil person who has never repented their sins. And they voluntarily have participated in the sins, other than Jonathan and Mephibosheth. And there's never been any remorse and any repentance. And the idea is that Saul, even Michael, who ends up going back to these things like a pagan, and she demonstrates in the way she rebukes David because he's worshiping God. The narrator's gone out of his way showing you that the entire house of Saul is rebellious. Not just sinful like David, but a man of God's in heart, but rebellious. Anti-God, unrepentive. And this is the environment that God is, um, the narrator's painted, that Saul has created. When God makes it very clear in Ezekiel 18 that he will not punish the children for the sins of the father, you have to read the context. You cannot take verses out of context and use it for how you want there was no numbering of verses in the original Bible. Everything was context. What God makes it very clear is that those children are righteous and they're pursuing God 
And as an individual, they're completely separate and different from their fathers. They have broken the cycle. And they have intentionally gone out of their way to get the education, the therapy, the marriage conferences, whatever there was back then, the prayer, to break the cycle of their culture, their environment, their family, their, their ancestors, to become righteous. In that sense, God won't punish them. But we've never gotten that picture of the descendants of Saul. We've gotten the picture that they've continued the cycle. And God also made it very clear, I will punish your children into the, um, to the hundredth generation because the idea that there's a generational sin. We've seen that with Ab- um, Noah, remember? Where Ham uncovered his nakedness and mocked him. And so God, Noah cursed his son Cain, or the, and, uh, Canaan, and that would carry down. And the Canaanites are that way because their parents were, their parents were, and nobody chose to break the cycle except for rare cases like Tamar and Rahab and that kind of stuff. And in that sense, when you create generational sins and you create a cycle where your kid is this and your kid is that and your kid is like that, then there is a sense where God does punish the children for the sins of the father because the children are just like the father. And they've created an entire corporate body of sin and rebellion this way. In that sense, God does punish the children. But when the child has intentionally gone out of his way to try to break the cycle and become something different, even if that child is still stuck in cyclical behaviors, because those are not easy to break, but because they're making intention to break it, the man or woman after God's own heart, then God is not going to judge them for the environment and the family that the ancestors have created that they participate in because they're trying not to participate in that environment. And they're the man and woman after God's own heart who's crying out to God. And God always, grace trumps the law when it comes to that. And that's what you need to see here. What we see is a corporate body of Saulites who have not broken the cycle. And God says, they massacred an entire people group and tried to genocide them. They and the entire nation of Israel joined Saul in that. So you as a nation get the famine and they as the family, as you get closer, get death. And so the further out you are from participating in that sin, there's a minor judgment of famine. But the closer and closer and closer you get to the heart of where and who committed that sin, the judgment gets more severe. And the minute that Israel has atoned for their sins of joining Saul by suffering three years of a famine. And the minute that those close to Saul have died by participating with Saul in the way that he thinks and maybe even joining him as he killed these people, die, then God says, now the atonement has happened. Because there was no repentance, there is no grace. But now that the law has been dealt, met, there is now forgiveness. Does that make sense? So you will either reap the law and then the judgment will come to an end or you will repent and you'll reap the grace of God and the judgment will come to an end. It's your choice. Now, I know that still doesn't like warms the cockles of your heart as we look at this. But once again, remember, this is so important. God wrote this Bible. And if he was like any good politician, he would have kept this out. But he's not embarrassed by it. And he's not trying to justify it. He puts it in his word and says, this is who I am. 
do not box me. I am the sovereign, holy God of the universe who can do whatever I want, but whatever I want never violates my character. I am the mysterious God that you can't even begin to fathom. And the only understanding that you have of me is what I have revealed to you. And the very thing that you're going to judge me based on is the very thing that I've put in you as the image of God, and it came from me. And I think you need to always remember that. The minute you start judging God and say, how could you, how could you, this isn't right. The only reason you're able to even think that way and even feel that and do that is because the character of God who put that character into you as his image gave it to you. And if it hadn't been for God, you wouldn't even be thinking this way in a million years. And then we turn around and we try to put it on him. And he's like, wait a minute. You don't even fully understand yourself half the time. And the only thing that you, the only reason you are that is because I gave it to you. And I'm way beyond that as the God of the universe. So don't you dare try to throw that back on me in some self-righteous, all-knowing kind of a sense. And he doesn't blush. He doesn't apologize. He says, here I am. And in the midst of that, he says, I am good. And remember, the other thing that you must always think too is, not only are we, he beyond us, but we also must put this in the light of God forgiving them at the golden calf, the way that God forgave David, the way that he dealt with Tamar and Ruth and Rahab, and ultimately in the cross. The cross is a greater act. So yeah, in one moment you can condemn God for doing this, because how could a God do that to people? I don't even do that. But in another sense, yeah, but you should be in hell if it hadn't been for the cross. And no human in all of human history has done anything even close to the cross for you. And, and, and God gives you both and says, here I am. Now the question you have to ask yourself is, are you going to bow down to him? Or are you going to reject him? Are you going to look at the entire character of God consistently throughout the entire scripture and say he is good and he is worthy of my love and devotion and worship? Or are you going to take isolated events and in your narrow, finite understanding of the world, when you're a blip in world history and you have no idea how the universe works and you don't even fully understand your own life or even how to deal with your own children half the time and judge and condemn him and say he's not good? And I would say, until you can live a perfect life of raising your children with total confidence you're doing the right thing all the time with no regrets ever. You have no right to say, how could you, God? That's my opinion. <laughs> the minute you're confused at one moment, you're just like, I don't know what to do, then you've lost the right to judge him. And that's every parent. I don't ultimately know what to do this, but at the same time, I also know how dare I stand in my ignorance and my finiteness and my stupidity and my confusion of being a parent, my own children, and say, that's not right, God. Especially when I have the cross. So my best explanation is, it all is based on repentance. Because ultimately under the law, all of us deserve to be exterminated and laid out on the rock. And the only reason we're not is because of the grace of God to begin with. And the only reason the entire family of Saul didn't die, and the only reason the entire nation of Israel didn't die in the famine, is because God relented. There's no way that their lives are really going to atone for that sin completely. 
And that's the point that the narrator is going to keep making is that doesn't actually atone for sin. That's why we so desperately need Jesus Christ. And so that's my best answer I got for you in our finiteness. And that's what we need to understand. Once again, we have a story of the grace of God trumps the law. Because if it was just the law, we would all be dead in hell. And we need to remember that, that God is good and God is good all the time. So chapter 21, verse 15. Another battle was fought between the Philistines and Israel. So David went down with his soldiers and fought the Philistines. And David became exhausted. Now Ishbai, Benob, one of his descendants of Raphah, had a spear that weighed 300 bronze shekels. And he was armed with a new weapon, and he had said that he would kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zariah, came to David in aid, striking the Philistine down, killing him. And then David's men took an oath, saying, You will not go out to battle with us again. You must not extinguish the lamp of Israel. So this is a battle. We think that it possibly is the beginning of his life when he's been fighting off the Philistines. There seems to be no reference to the Philistines or fighting them because David's kingdom is falling apart because of his sins. It seems to be more at the very beginning when he's securing everything. And the point is here to show that everything we've seen about David so far, he's been a phenomenal warrior, practically an unstoppable warrior, like the ancient version of Chuck Norris. And that's how he's been portrayed to us for most of Scripture. But yet here we're being shown that even he gets exhausted. Even he gets worn out. And that in the end, he's just a human, which reminds you why he was so successful all those times is because Yahweh was with him. It was nothing in his own ability, but Yahweh was with him. And this reminder of his exhaustion shows that. But the other thing is we meet a Philistine who is portrayed as a Goliath-like figure, another big man who has a weapon that is superior to everybody else. I love that it's a new, a new sword. Like it just came from Cabela's and got this brand new spear ready to be used. He's got the latest and greatest technology in warfare. And the Israelites, we know, don't. They're behind the times. And he swears that he's going to kill David. And this says that he's, he's, he's got his eyes on David. He's chasing her down. And Abishai comes in and, and defeats the Philistines, strikes them down. Now, this says something because with Abishai, we see that, remember, he was the scumbag. I mean, all these guys are scumbags, but he was like the scumbag of all scumbags right there under Joab. And God is showing that even Abishai has loyalty to the kingdom of God. Even Abishai has loyalty to David. And it can be used in a positive way and not just a negative, just kill everybody who opposes David. And that God is using that. And, and this is so important to understand is as Christians in America today, we're very anti-violence. And I, I'm not going to refute that and any kind of a way. But at the same time, the Bible is showing that God can use even violent men. And that there is a time and a place to kill. There's a time for peace. And there's a time that we know that certain people are designed for certain things and God is using these violent men. And they've got their own issues and nonviolent men have their issues and women and all that kind of stuff. And we all have our issues to deal with. Some are more visible than other issues. But even Abishai is being used by God in an incredible way. 
And so it shows that Abishai is being used by God. It shows that his men are incredibly loyal to him and that they're willing to do anything to rescue him. It's showing that God is with him. It's showing the unity of the nation at this moment. And it's showing that David is even human. And all this is basically acknowledging that Yahweh is the ultimate protector. And that when even these flawed men, when they are being used in the right way, they can do extraordinary things. And that they show their love for him because most people will be like, that's not cool. You're not going to play the game with us. You don't get a trophy. But they're just like, you are the lamp of Israel. And we value. This is the first and only time that the lamp of Israel is ever used in the Bible. We've seen lamps in the tabernacle. The churches in Revelation are going to be referred to as lamps. But never this idea of the lamp of Israel. Now obviously the idea of lamp portrays the idea of light and guidance and illumination. But it's interesting that in some ways, Abishai is saying to David, you're the best of us. This may be reading a little bit too much into it, but I don't think a whole lot. And I don't know exactly what Abishai is thinking and how much he's acknowledged. But I know the narrator is at least saying this, that what would these people be like without David as their leader? I mean, we've seen what they're like with David as their leader. What would they be like without the lamp of God? And David's got his own issues and his own violence and his own problems. But overall, he has still always been trying to be focused on God his entire life. And that has been seen by the men that follow him. And that has rubbed off in them a certain way. And there's a sense that despite all that, David is the lamp of Israel. He has been the light of God to them. And the best that he could do in the time period and the culture that he was born in and the circumstances that you are. And remember, it's easy to judge somebody when you're looking at your life. It's another thing to live in this culture where violence is around you all the time. And to deal with these things and, and condemn him for that. So later there was another battle, verse 18, with the Philistines. And this time in Gob. And on the occasion, Sibekai, the Hushathite, killed Saf, who was one of the descendants of Raphah. And yet another battle occurred with the Philistines and Gob, and on that occasion, Ethan, the son of Jer, the Bethlehemite, killed the brother of Goliath and the Gittite, and the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. Yet another battle occurred in Gath, and on that occasion there was a large man with six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, and twenty-four in all. He too was a descendant of Raphah. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of David's brother, Shimei, killed him. And these four were the descendants of Raphah, who lived in Gath. And they were killed by David and his soldiers. This is basically a list of like the great things that David's men are doing. And the incredible things that they're accomplishing. And remember, Judges has already established that it is impossible to take these fortresses without God. We saw at the very end of Numbers when the people were unwilling to take the promised land and God says, fine, you're not going to get to the promised land. And they're like, no, we changed our mind. We'll go. Seriously, we're for real this time. And then God's like, I'm not going to be with you. And they go in and they're just slaughtered by these men. These giants, these large people, technological advancements, all that kind of stuff. And we get to Judges and we see that they're equipped and they're able to do it because God is with them. And then when they begin to lack, their, they stop trusting God, the enemy begins to crush them. And what this shows is that these men, in all their flaws 
and all their violence and all their brokenness, there is something in them that is trusting God, or they would have never been able to pull these feats off. And so even, yes, Joab, yes, Abishai, they've got this moments in their life where they're trusting in God, and God is able to use them. And I think this is a very important thing, because remember I took you through Judges, and when we went through Judges, that reading probably completely destroyed your, your Gideon is a great man of faith. Samson's a great man of faith. Yet these guys show up in the book of Hebrews saying, by faith, they were able to. And this is the point that Christ is making. With faith as a mustard seed, you can move mountains. And what's amazing is that we look at these people's stories throughout these last two books and we think, wow, there's no way I would ever want you anywhere close to my church and my people and my family. And like I said, these are just violent. These are gangsters. And, and I mean like an Al Capone kind of a sense. And yet there's something in them where they're trying to follow God to the best of their ability. They have enough faith that God is using it and they're doing amazing accomplishments in the name of Yahweh. And that's important to understand is that all of us are mixed bags. All of us are mixed bags. And God is using these people. 